0: up in uh, Durham yeah. uh, it was great Durham Literature Festival Durham Book Festival I was reading in residence there uh, I did a, a panel on the uh, on Sunday morning with the writer Kit Duvall who is going to be a guest here on Backlist in a few weeks time and with um, Kathy Rensenbrink the books journalist and terrific author Kathy Rensenbrink and she um, mentioned something on this panel that we did about what makes a classic which has really stuck in my mind and I want to raise it with you now, right? She said, oh, she said, there's a thing I see people doing on Twitter where someone will say, As any, for the sake of argument, let's say John Updike. Right? Someone will say, has anyone read any John Updike? Should I, should I give it a go? And people will reply and say, oh, I read like 10 pages of Rabbit Run and uh, didn't get on with it. Not for me, right? And then the first person will reply and say, oh, thanks for that, you've saved me the bother. <laughs> I think that's terrible. You imagine like the great years and years that people take to write books, and because someone had a bit of an off day, or, or and didn't, <laughs> <laughs> and didn't really get it, or couldn't be bothered, someone else just goes, oh yeah, thanks for saving me the bother.
1: But isn't that just the same as someone saying I didn't like the first track in an LP and then not listening to the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, it's wrong. Or the yeah, first 30 wrong.
0: seconds
2: oh,
1: of the right.
0: LP. That's
2: it's
1: terrible. I think that's all right.
0: Old Brian Wilson went mad making
2: pet <laughs> sounds, but you don't like the first 30 seconds of the first track. It's not know, I Brian put, Wilson's problem, mate. I
1: don't know, but I haven't listened to an album in its entirety for years. Yeah.
2: And, Andy and I have discussed before that um, the theory that you can, either, you can have an opinion on a book if you've not read it. Because that opinion is, is called from its kind of you know, its cultural cachet and kind of how, how people respond to it. You're allowed to have an opinion on a book if you haven't read it. And you're allowed to have an opinion on a book if you have read it. If you finished if, it. If you finished it. Yeah. But you've only read ten pages or a hundred pages. You're not allowed to have an opinion on. It. Go or <laughs> <laughs> be gone. Stop,
3: <laughs> stop muddying the pool. This is the uh, no man's water. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, uh, yeah. Literature. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's you know,
0: an opinion based on ten pages is not. Is there not an opinion worth having? Yeah.
3: I've always, I always felt that that I, I hate the. I've always hated samplers for that reason. You know. I know we have to put excerpts for our crowdfunding projects on the site, but that seems to me to be what what, you know. What are you going to do? You know, you're asking people to back an idea essentially, which I think is valid. But to have a fully formed you know opinion about a book based on an an excerpt seems to me a little just lazy. What's
1: wrong with something that's half thought through? What about a half foot for a pig? I quite like them.
3: It says, it says a lot
0: about you,
1: <laughs> but not about the book. That's <laughs> true. It says but that also, you're a lightweight. But also, lightweight. Your, your insistence on reading a book until it finishes yeah. says a lot about you. Where does that come from? Where in your childhood does that come from? Did you always do it? No, no, no.
0: I'm a
3: reformed character. Okay. I'm a new Puritan. <laughs> I, I, am, I hate not finishing things really, really upsets me. Even if I'm not enjoying it, that's some oh, yeah. sort of weird, puritanical thing, I oh, suppose. You're finished.
1: I'm the opposite of that. I'd quite happily put a book down and if I'm not enjoying it and not pick it up again. Unhappily judge an album on its first song. Backlisted and is now over. Backlisted no. is over. <laughs> <laughs> backlisted is over, And everyone. a book on something. I've only read ten pages. I actually? think you're allowed
2: to do that. Just don't then go round offering your opinion <laughs> on <of> it. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. You're uh, <laughs> a lot.
3: Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special Halloween edition of Backlisted Podcast. Today we're gathered once more around the <laughs> kitchen table of our sponsors Unbound, the publishers who bring authors and readers together at the dead of night to create good <laughs> things to read. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher at Unbound. <laughs> yes. Oh, and
0: I, I'm Andy Chiller. And uh, I'm the author of the Year of Bleeding Dangerously. And, um, uh, we're joined, as usual, by uh, the writer and spiritualist Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> or is it is it is it
3: just ectoplasm
0: <laughs> that I see next to me? It's a ghost,
1: ghostly figure. Uh,
3: and joining us on this edition again is a writer, critic, and senior associate editor at Mojo, Andrew Mail. Andrew previously graced us with his presence when he appeared to talk about Raymond Chandler's The High Window six whole months ago.
1: He did talk about he didn't just appear to talk about <laughs> it. He
0: Andrew, appeared <laughs> uh, and then talked.
3: Andrew like, chose a
0: crime, one of the most famous crime writers and then came on this show and said he wasn't a crime writer. You've Today you've chosen one of the most um, notorious writers of ghost stories
3: who you're going to tell us
0: he isn't is, a writer of he ghost is stories. He's not a writer of ghost stories. And who would that be? Robert Aikman. The
2: Robert,
3: great Robert Aikman. I mean, the... The truly great, I think, Robert Aitman. Um, but first, uh, the foul rag and bone <laughs> shop of the heart, Andy. <laughs> it. We're to all at things. start, and certainly where this podcast <laughs> usually starts. Yes, yes. What
0: have you been reading this week? <clears throat> so I've been reading uh, the new novel by Ali Smith, and that novel is called Autumn. How and appropriate, I seasonally appropriate. I, I, I shall read you a tiny uh, portion of it in a, in a minute, which is seasonally uh, appropriate bit um, i I really like Ali Smith anyway, and I really wanted to read this particular novel as quickly as possible because she only finished writing it it seems about six weeks ago uh, um, and it's just it was it was really unusual to read a novel so contemporary that it has particular names and events relating to uh, the referendum in the summer which, it, which just pull you up short or give you goosebumps because you can't quite believe you're seeing them in a finished, printed and Why have they book. done it
1: so quickly? Have Hamish Hamilton explained why they've published so quickly? Is that something that she I wanted? She, yeah, she a, just wanted a desperate that. attempt to and get some <laughs> <laughs> revenue no, I, I think before it's Christmas. Not,
0: I, I think it's not what to ride the Gove bandwagon I don't believe yeah. so. Not even Michael Gove wants to do that now.
3: Um, well, he <laughs> might be my favourite Neil Yeah. If you can see the bandwagon, you've already missed it. <laughs> so she's right, I believe she's writing four
0: seasonal novels, of which this is the first. And um, so it's so it's very contemporary. It's about autumn, the best season, <laughs> as we know. <laughs> um, it's um, it features
1: quite.
2: It's true. It's obviously
0: the best. Go on season. then.
3: Go on then. Put your favourite seasons in all Oh, words. it's simple.
0: <laughs> Autumn, winter, winter. spring, oh. and trailing way oh. behind. <laughs> dreaded, dreaded summer. Oh, the goodness. worst of all the seasons. That every all right-thinking people know, no, Matthew, do not come back a minute. <laughs> you know, you know no.
1: my list is exactly the opposite. Of course,
0: of, of course it is. Absolutely. This novel also covers the brilliant pop art painter Pauline Bote uh, in some depth. Uh, fantastically interesting and and, uh, I read it in a day or so it's wonderfully written it clearly owes a debt to Tuve Janssen's The Summer Book there is a relationship in Ali Smith's novel between an elderly man and a young woman Mostly conveyed in dialogue, it very, very like the summer book, a book which Ali Smith, Ali Smith written at length about Tuvey Janssen. And John and I were talking about this is such a beautiful i don't actually have a copy of the book with me because I didn't want to get it, damage it by bringing it to London no, it's with it's me it's today. It's so beautifully designed and printed and bound.
1: Is it Hockney print on the front?
0: It is, yeah, but and, and they 've done this painted. wonderful so. thing with the end papers that all the, 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 the binding and the cover and the end papers are the colour, colours of autumn. They're different autumnal shades. And the inside front cover is green and the inside back cover is a painting by Pauline Boty. So when you finish the book, uh, you turn the page and suddenly there's this incredible explosion of pop art out of what's been a very muted experience up to that point, which is, which is one of the points of the novel, right. is saying that, uh, art is here, even in these awful times, to explode into colour when we need it. Um, uh, so, so just one, just actual reading for pleasure. Imagine that. <laughs> you know, picking up a book that you love that's about things you're interested in, which is a beautiful object to hold. It's just wonderful. Wonder. And what I'd also say to people is if you are thinking of reading this book, which you probably might be because it's Ali Smith, um, read it now. The sooner you read it, the more resonance it will have. Is that because, because it's designed to be read right now. Right is that now, because of the
3: topical... Yes. And you yes, think it's carrying a, a kind of a message for now. Yes, and
0: also it's a unique... I can't think of another experience of picking up a novel which deals with things which are still happening, which are still in the news and still going on now. But I just want to read this tiny bit.
1: Can you do a Scottish accent?
0: I can, but it would lose us, our Scottish listener. (laughs) Lead to another referendum. Contentious. Contentious (laughs) at this time. This is about October, the the month in which this is both being recorded and will be broadcast. October's a blink of the eye. The apples weighing down the tree a minute ago are gone, and the tree's leaves are yellow and thinning. A frost has snapped millions of trees all across the country into brightness. The ones that aren't evergreen are a combination of beautiful and tawdry, red-orange-gold, the leaves then brown and down. The days are unexpectedly mild. It doesn't feel that far from summer, not really, if it weren't for the underbite of the day, the lacy creep of the dark and the damp at its edges, the plants calm in the folding themselves away, the beads of condensation on the web strings hung between things. On the warm days, it feels wrong, so many leaves falling, but the nights are cool to cold. Oh, that's no, great. That is great. That's great. That's really good. She's great. She, that's she, she, uh, yeah. funny. The book is funny as well when it wants to be funny, and it's clever when it wants to be clever. I really love this book. Wonderful. Great. John, what have you been reading? Well, I couldn't be further.
3: But I, it, I'm keeping on the topical theme. I went back to an old favourite. Um, in, in fact, if I was going to be you know, thinking of the themes that we're going to uh, going on to later, if. If you could pour yourself into a book, or you could, in, as it were, have a book that holds your soul, I'd say there's more of my my soul in this book that, uh, than, than any other that I own, which is quite a big thing. Wow. Like I Like a I, Harry Potter and It's the Londonator said. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I got hold of it when I was at a particular time in my life when I was... Uh, living not in the UK and wanted to wanted to get under the sort of the skin of, uh, of UK pop. It's called British Popular Customs, Present and Past, illustrating the social and domestic manners of the people, arranged according to the calendar of the year by the Reverend T. F. Thistleton Dyer, M. A. of Pembroke College, Oxford. And it's a brilliant gazetteer for every day of the year. The strange, bizarre. It's just a completely. I mean, there are lots of gazetteers, and there are lots of modern ones but this is sort of this was written in 18, in the 1860s so what's interesting is a lot of the cust- customs that we now associate with things hadn't really kicked in and a lot of the things that we think for example halloween and trick or treating that we think is an extremely kind of modern newfangled american uh, invention uh, you you discover in fact souling as it was called in those days kids going from door to door yeah, and asking yeah. for soul cakes in return for money or the threat of often <laughs> yeah, scarcely concealed threat of violence. <laughs> uh, if they didn't, is, is is there? But it's just um, it's just a joy. And I, I there were a couple of things I thought I would uh, uh, I, I would read out. There was there was one I particularly liked um, the fact that that the, the night was called variously Cake Night, Nutcrack Night, um, Pookie Night, Punky Night, oh, <laughs> which yeah. is quite nice, yeah. or Spunky Night. Uh, in, oh. fact, in Somerset, it was known as It's Spunky Night, It's Spunky Night. Gies a candle, gies a light. E- if he don't, he'll have a fright. Uh, you know, Sample, that's very, 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 um, <laughs> it's obviously very, very basic folk poetry. Um, uh, I like the, uh, the, the you know, there's a, the, he's, this is that give you the style. I mean, the, he's not a great stylist, let's be honest, but the, in. Uh, <clears throat> One of the most common customs is that for diving for apples or of catching at them with the mouth only, the hands being tied behind and the apple suspended on one end of a long transverse beam at the other extremity of which is fixed a lighted candle. The fruit and nuts form the most prominent part of the evening feast and from this circumstance, the night has been termed nutcrack night. All <laughs> oh, those crazy... <laughs> those crazy olden times. <laughs> um... So there's a lot of stuff about fire and a lot of stuff about kind of uh, apples and uh, the turning of the year. Um, There's a good one, I think Lancashire, my favourite recipe. (laughs) He says, this is very Thistleton Diet, this is in the Isle of Man and why, why not? For some peculiar reason, potatoes, parsnips and fish are pounded together and mixed with butter. This forms the evening meal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely, mm, lovely pounded <laughs> parson. Mm, oh, on Spunky night,
2: it's <laughs> odd that both your descriptions reminded me of the uh, novelist that we, the yeah, well, this, that we are about well, to read. I'm yeah. going to
3: read you just a very short, uh, and, and this is this is right up a- Aikman Street in Lancashire, says Hampson. This is the thing: is the book is full of other people who you've never heard of, which is so. It's a lot of uh, old, dead scholarship, which is one of the reasons I like it. In Lancashire, at Hampson, it was formally believed. Everything is formally believed, basically. Most of the Christmas things are all formally. These c- Christians have died out in recent years. It was formally believed that witches assembled on the night to do their deeds without a name. At their general rendezvous, which is great, the general rendezvous, <laughs> not the <a> specific one, <laughs> in the forest of Pendle, a ruined and desolate farmhouse denominated the Malkin Tower, from the awful purposes to which it was devoted. This superstition led to a ceremony called lating, or perhaps leeting, the witches. It was believed that if a lighted candle were carried about the fells or hills from 11 till 12 o'clock at night and burned all that time steadily, it had so far triumphed over the evil power of the witches who, as they passed to the Malkin Tower, would employ their utmost efforts to extinguish the light and the person whom it represented might safely defy their malice during the season. But if by accident the light went out, it was an omen of evil... To the, to the luckless white for whom the experiment was made. So this is kind of people with a candle outside <laughs> in the middle of October. I'd say they, have, a abs- hill in yeah, they have absolutely no chance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, another one's down. Anyway, the whole idea of finding yourself on a hill in Lancashire uh, yes. with a candle... Slightly uh, not knowing, start, no, not knowing where you, you, were, there, going. Going and you were going. On a hillside pink, desolate. On a hillside desolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, is kind of quite a good setup for yes. for. Uh, and I think that would be. We've got so much to to, to, to set in. The only thing I wanted you is my favourite quote on Halloween from Jean Baudrillard. <laughs> <laughs> I, what other podcast would offer <laughs> that, <laughs> that phrase? Uh, there is nothing funny about Halloween. Eh? This sarcastic festival reflects rather an infernal demand for revenge by children and the adult world. <laughs> oh. yeah. So, uh, a little Trick bit... or treat, Jean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know what it is. Trick or treat in French? Probably not, got it. We'll be back in just a sec. Let's go to Aikman. So we are uh, talking about the writer
0: uh, of Strange Stories, Robert Aikman uh, today, and before I hand over to our guest Andrew Mail, uh, I just want to explain that in a slight break from backlisted tradition, although we are concentrating on a volume of Robert Aikman's stories called Cold Hand in Mine, we will also be talking about other stories by Robert Aikman on the grounds that once you've read two or three of these stories, you'll want to read many more of them. All of them. So, And this is a good moment because uh, there are four volumes currently in print from Faber and Faber, so
3: they're quite easy to come by. Um, Um, and, and, And respect to Faber and Faber for having reissued them. Yes,
0: Andrew, I want to ask you two questions to start with. First of all, can you remember the first Robert Aikman story that you read? Second of all, for our listeners,
2: define... A Robert Aikman story for me. Oh, um, the first Robert Aikman story I would have read, I probably wouldn't have known it was a Robert Aikman story because as a kid, I devoured Fontana books of ghost stories. and But I didn't always know, I just read them as stories. I didn't kind of then go, oh, that was by Walter Delamere or that was by Robert Aikman. So the first time I kind of became aware of Robert Aikman was um, when I was at... Um, College in Stafford, and I found a book from uh, withdrawn from Middlesbrough Libraries and Information called The Unsettled Dust. Um, <laughs> and, um, but for ages, I couldn't get into this. that, that the actual pocket. I have it here. I have it here. Oh, which, uh, it's... You can describe it as sort of a, a gentleman in a sort of nice 80s double breasted suit staring um, into a copse where <laughs> there is some blood <laughs> on uh, the end of a, um, a rose bush.
4: Yes,
0: no. it's not. I think finding suitable images for the covers of Robert Aikman books is a, per, a, a perennial problem. Although there's one there, you were holding up the first edition of Cold Hand in Mine uh, <laughs> to, to show John and Matthew that. You know, um, did you know who drew that? No, it's beautiful. But Edward Gorey.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, he did um, two covers. He did Cold Hand in Mine, and he also did um, a book club compilation called Painted Devils and they were both um, sort of Edward Gorey covers, and they Who really
0: so? well suited.
1: Who's Edward de Gorey? Oh, oh, Edward oh. Gorey. Edward Edward uh, Can you remember? It's the, the guy the you read, tiniest. like,
0: two pages of and couldn't get on <laughs>
1: <any. laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks for saving me the bother. <laughs> that would be Robert Aitman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> shade.
0: Edward, Edward, Edward Gorey. Who's going to Who's gonna He's, explain um, Edward Gorey?
2: I mean, upstate New York um, sort of... Poet and illustrator, um, sort of operating in sort of 1950s and 60s, um, sort of heavily indebted to people like sort of Ambrose Bierce, but also sort of Edward Lear, Edward Lear for sure. and a beautiful, delicate uh, penmanship, but incredibly uh, macabre stories. Very famous um, story
0: called "The Uninvited Guest." That's yes, the, that's the most famous. Yeah. Hey, I've got an album of, uh, <laughs> as I'm sure Andrew has, of Robert <laughs> Wyatt singing Edward Gorey stories, oh, really? which I'm very happy to. Yeah, on to called? you. G-
3: it's
2: called the. Is it called the uninvited guest? It might be called the uninvited oh, guest. Oh, I think it yeah. is. Yeah, I think it is.
3: Uh, the one that you see a lot—the kids' book The Cumin Tiny's*, which is a very kind of macabre. A is for Albert who fell down the stairs.
0: Yeah, So it's basically it's an A to Z of children. So Andrew Matthew bought you valuable thinking time there to define story. You've done gory for us. I have a definition here. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Go for it.
3: We should just say about that. That. I, although it is an Edward Gorey cover, you have to say it's one of it is Ron Seal, isn't it? To the point of madness. Yeah. Cold hand in mine. Uh, I've drawn a hand on another hand. <laughs> yeah. in it. Is that yeah. okay? Will that do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, but it might
2: it might have um, the hospice in the in the <laughs> distance, one of um, Aitman's stories. So it kind of it, you know it might be related to one of yeah. the stories within there, and it might be a wood that he's going into another <laughs> Aitman story, into the wood. Um, not in that book, though. Oh, no, not in that book. <laughs> <laughs> you're, saying that, you're saying
0: there are no woods in that oh, book? I'm sure, of course yeah. there, are. there are woods. Um, so, how
2: yeah, to go, so, so how to England define the story? England story. Um, yeah. Kind of parochial, kind of unremarkable Englishmen, often sort of public servants or travelling salesmen, um, moving through kind of the edges of a sort of tawdry, sad, modern world. Something goes wrong, they take a, a wrong step, or they kind of perform some sort of act that they later sort of pay for and they enter into this world beyond where the normal rules by mm. which they kind of judge yeah, yeah, everything yeah. no longer exist. As a, to quote yeah. a famous line in one of the Aikman story, kind of, the map is wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's right,
0: Andrew. You were saying earlier that, that the map is wrong. And, even, and in a great Aikman story, what happens is you turn around to think about where you were 20 pages earlier and you can't understand how you got to the horrible place that you've reached. It is it, that, that done.
3: remarkable thing, isn't it? That everything—it's—it's—they're it, it, br- so brilliantly constructed, because he, usually nothing that is odd happens for about three quarters of the story. Yeah. But small little details, just kind of lines, little kind of—he is the master of you know that that, that what, what gets called the Unheimlich, you know, yeah. just that little ooh, 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 that's a strange detail, you know, and you move on, but then. Every single one of the stories ends up with you. It's it's a bit like I mean I know it's in everybody's minds. You know, Stranger Things, the the, the upside down. Mm. You, suddenly, although they, nothing's changed, the character yeah. hasn't essentially changed or hasn't learned anything or hasn't had a major revelation. What's around them has suddenly kind of conspired to kind of punish them or. Or undermine everything that they thought. I mean, they're, they're deep. They're,
0: what and I and also about, and, and it, philosophical, yes. philosophical, and also he likes he likes a not a loose end. That's not right. But he likes to take you somewhere, I think, and then leave you there.
3: Yes, without absolutely. saying without There's the path back. Yeah, right.
0: Uh, I think that's really important, and one of the things that's particular about Agnew. I, I just want to say, John. I I, I Yesterday, I I said on Twitter that I was trying to, for my notes, for the stories in cold hand in mind, I was trying to write one-sentence synopses (laughs) of each story so I could remember which story was which. Like Trump book reports, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, Sad. And and I said, well, as soon as I started trying to do it, bigly, as as soon as I started trying to do it, I realised that it's really hard to do it without spoiling both the plot and the style in
2: which it's done. Totally. But also also not doing the stories justice as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pages
3: from a young... uh, a young girls journal yeah I mean, you can't that there is a there is a, a no fact, spoilers there is a fact in that yes which becomes gradually apparent yes but it's so brilliantly kind of played i mean even though it's three quarters of the way through you pretty much know what's going yeah. on you read to the end because you can't quite you he, he's he's brilliant at just keeping you hanging I, just enough I, I, but I must. Story, i must story. just sorry sorry Andrew, yeah. i must
0: just say when i said that i was trying to boil these synopses down, I had several people reply to me with various comments. The great M. John Harrison replied saying, I can't imagine anything more difficult. Good luck. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the very nice uh, and talented editor Simon Spanton suggested a synopsis of an Aikman story would be, something happens which may or may not. Brilliant. <laughs> and, and Lucy from the Sheen Bookshop said, something ordinary
2: horrifies someone and also the reader. <laughs> yeah, that's good. They're good, aren't they? You've got one as well. But um, you? the reviewer for the Irish Times, who reviewed my um, paperback edition of um, Dark Entries uh, from 1964, saved us all the trouble. Very ordinary, unimaginative people are presented who suddenly find themselves caught in a horrible nightmare. LAUGHTER
0: so, that's, that's that's saying, bad, I, a, I fresh, think that's pretty good <laughs> yeah. so, so Andrew you were talking about The Fontana book of great, great Ghost stories which was uh, uh, I'm sure we remember these from our The news. first eight yeah, we're yeah. all yeah. edited the first by Robert Aikman one, So the first eight are edited by Aikman And in the introduction here to the first one Aikman, um, I'm just going to read this out Because Aikman tells you what he was trying To do with the ghost story Which I think is very interesting And this, is a, this volume, the first one The Fontana book of great ghost stories This has stories by people like L.P. Hartley, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu, D.H. Lawrence, uh, Mrs. Gaskell, and Robert Aikman. <laughs> um, so, he,
1: so that it's an anthology. It's not. They weren't created for that. No, book, they're stuff an, that he's drawn from existing works. And
0: he, he he says this is the introduction to volume one. And I bear in mind that there were eight that he edited. This is his this is his hostage to fortune opening <laughs> line. There are only about 30 or 40 first-class ghost stories in the whole of Western <laughs> literature. Um, but he then goes on. The ghost story must be distinguished from the scientific extravaganza on its left and from the horror story on its right. The writing of science fiction demands primarily the scientific aptitude for imagining the unrealized implications of a known phenomenon. Its composition is akin to the making of an actual scientific discovery, and it is well known that many of the scientific developments first promulgated as fiction all too soon become fact. The horror story is purely sadistic. It depends entirely upon power to shock. Today, of course, D'Assard has defenders in high places, such as Madame Simone de Beauvoir, And existentialism contends that life itself is properly to be seen as a sequence of minute-to-minute shocks, including, quote, nausea and, quote, vertigo. The ghost story, however, seems to derive its power from what is most deep and most permanent. It is allied to poetry. The ghost story, like Dr Freud, makes contact
3: with the submerged nine-tenths. I love that. It's, it's Again, it uh, reminded me there's a great, there's a great line uh, to, trying to sum up Aikman's kind of uh, technique or his, his, his sort of deep, rather dark philosophy. I like this. In, in uh, Niemann's Wasser, which is a brilliant, brilliant story about which you can't really give anything away. But so you, Do you want my synopsis? <laughs> oh, go oh, go on then. <laughs> the
0: Third World War I, Prince Elmo sorties alone onto a lake. With unhappy consequences.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do, they all, do they all end with unhappy consequences? <laughs> pretty, <Yeah>.
0: pretty much. <laughs> pretty much.
3: Well, this is, this is very Aikman. All things must go ill one day, Your Highness, or what seems to be ill. That is the message of the memento mori. And usually, it is one day soon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So Andrew, but he had another name for the subconscious, didn't he? He referred to it as, uh, which is brilliantly sort of Aikman-esque, he called it the magnetic undermined... Yes that's, yeah. right. that's so Brilliant. good and also you know the idea that it obviously uh, which pun, is like that the, it undermines you like upside down
1: is that yeah sense? yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 and it,
2: another one yeah. of his favorite words another german word was um, i think it's erfurcht which yeah. um, is um, reverence for what one cannot understand mm.
0: I, um, I i found when i was just reading the uh, that introduction from the pontana book of great, story, great ghost stories Uh, Andrew, I'm going to pass over to you to to quote-unquote take the Aikman challenge, which is, can you read us a little bit from one of the stories... Uh, and maybe talk a bit about it. You were going to read something from The Hospice. I, can, right? oh, I had
2: um, the end of The Hospice to read, yeah. if that's okay. Yeah yeah, 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 that would be
0: great. We we just give us a setup? I, I, I'm my terrible. Shall well, I you give you Watch out, give me
2: your one line, sort of, and I'll fill in from your one line synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> Travelling like, like Faulty, traveling, like, faulty Towers, yeah. without
0: the
3: Tra- laughs.
2: Travelling salesman
0: stays overnight at a bizarre hotel called The Hospice, finds it hard to check out.
2: That's <laughs> good. This is uh, this joins him after his terrible evening, yeah. Um, and and we should say that the e- e- the evening is spent effectively being force fed, right? Force fed unpleasant Turkey. Turkey British tonight. heavy British food. In um, when he re- when he refuses to eat it, the uh, waitress throws the plate down and on the, the floor. The, that's the, but the
3: first kind of unheimlich moment is when he notices that there are fetters that they're actually yes. they're chained. That one of of, one of the guests is is chained to the table.
0: table. (laughs) It's that brilliant mixture of something that's sort of silly, bizarre, horrible, really sort of visceral. There's all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. about the texture of
2: food and and
0: lichen and fungus and all these things.
2: So yes, so so And then he has to and he sort of stays the night, that everyone there there are no single rooms, he has to share a room. With this uh, rather peculiar gentleman, and there may or may not have been a murder in the yeah, night, right, yeah, yeah. but there's certainly a uh, body that has to be disposed of and in the morning, and a blood, horrible blood, and it's
0: never screen. explained brilliantly why the hotel <laughs> is called itself the hospice. <laughs> right? Well, there's, there's two
2: definitions for a hospice, isn't there? There's a place of care for terminally ill people, but it's also a religious place of rest. Ah. So it's, sometimes it's a hotel run by a religious order. Ah, very good. I didn't yeah. know that. Right, yeah. take it away. Down in the lounge, there they all were, with Faulkner presiding indefinably but genially. One, though authentic, sunlight trickled in from the outer world, but Mabry observed that the front door was still bolted and chained. It was the first thing he looked for. Universal expectation was detectable. Of breakfast, Mabry assumed. Bannard, at all times shrimpish, was simply lost in the throng. Cecile he could not see, but he made a point of not looking very hard. In any case, several of the people looked new, or at least different. Possibly it was a further example of the phenomenon Mabry had encountered with Bannard. Faulkner crossed him at once, the recalcitrant but still privileged outsider, ''I can promise you a good breakfast, Mr Mabry,'' he said confidentially. ''Lentils, fresh fish, rump steak, apple pie made by ourselves with lots and lots of cream.'' ''I mustn't stay for it,'' said Mabry. ''I simply mustn't. I have my living to earn. I must go at once.'' He was quite prepared to walk a couple of miles, indeed all set for it. The automobile organisation which had given him the route from which he should never have diverged could recover his car, They'd done it before for him several times. A faint shadow passed over Faulkner's face, but he merely said in a low voice, If you really insist, Mr Mabry... I- I'm, a- I'm afraid I have to, said Mabry. Then I'll... I have a word with you in a moment. None of the others seemed to concern themselves. Soon they all filed away, talking quietly among themselves, or in many cases, saying nothing. Mr Mabry, said Faulkner, you can respect a confidence... ''Yes,'' said Mabry steadily. ''There was an incident here last night, a, a death. We, we do not talk about such things. Our, our guests do not expect it.'' ''I am sorry,'' said Mabry. ''Such things still upset me,'' said Faulkner. "Nonetheless, I must not think about that. My immediate task is to dispose of the body while the guests are preoccupied, to spare them all knowledge, all pain. ''How is that to be done?'' inquired Mabry. "'In the usual manner, Mr Mabry. "'The hearse is drawing up outside the door even as we speak. "'Where you are concerned, the point is this. "'If you wish for what in other circumstances I could call a lift, "'I could arrange for you to join the vehicle. "'It's travelling quite a distance. We find that best.' "'Faulkner was progressively unfastening the front door. "'It seems the best solution, don't you think, Mr Mabry? "'At least it is the best I can offer.' "'though you will not be able to thank Mr. Bannard, of course.' "'A coffin was already coming down the stairs, borne on the shoulders of four men in black, "'with Vincent in his white jacket coming first "'in order to leave no doubt of the way "'and to prevent any loss of time.' "'I agree,' said Mabry. "'I accept. "'Perhaps you would let me know my bill for dinner?' "'I shall waive that too, Mr. Mabry,' replied Faulkner. "'In the present circumstances,' we have a duty to hasten, we have others to think of, I shall simply say how glad we have all been to have you with us. He held out his hand. Goodbye, Mr Mabry. Mabry was compelled to travel with the coffin itself because there simply was not room for him on the front seat where a director of the firm, a corpulent man, had to be accommodated with the driver.' The nearness of death compelled a respectful silence among the company in the rear compartment, especially when a living stranger was in the midst. And Mabry alighted unobtrusively when a bus stop was reached. One of the undertaker's men said that he should not have to wait long.
0: Oh, that's so that's brilliant. brilliant. That's really well read
3: as well. I'm oh, fantastic, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, but it's, nothing is explained. <laughs> it's, no. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's glorious. Um, a, there's a quote here, I've got a quote from
0: Neil Gaiman, uh, which is germane to this. Gaiman is talking about Aitman. He says, I think that Aitman is one of those authors that you respond to on a very primal level. If you're a writer, it's a bit like being a stage magician. A stage magician produces coin, takes coin, demonstrates coin vanished. That tends to be what you do as a fiction writer, reading fiction. You'll go, oh look, he's setting that up. Reading Robert Aitman is like watching a magician work and very often I'm not even sure what the trick was. (laughs) All I know is that he did it beautifully. Yes, the key vanished, but I don't know if he was holding a key in the hand to begin with. I find myself admiring everything he does from an authorial standpoint, and I love it as a reader. He will bring on atmosphere. He will construct these perfect, dark, doomed little stories, what he called strange stories. And actually, that is a distinction that he would... I think that it deserves credit for several things, but one of the things is actually it would be easy for a writer of ghost stories to say my ghost stories are better than the run-of-the-mill ghost stories they are strange stories, but actually that does really mean something with Aikman, I think they are not like reading anybody else.
3: No, I think, I think that's uh, that, you know, I was thinking that the recent piece of Robert McFarlane about the eerie, and uh, that, that seems to be a word that, that, that strange for Aikman yes. it's the, the strange Absolutely. is definitely some, some kind of atmosphere that he's, that he's wherever he starts his character, and I, I do love that they are these kind of pooterish... Yeah. They're always, the, you know, sort of Reggie Perrins. They're kind of the, the yeah. often men, but not but, always. There's some, some of his women characters are, are the, the brilliant uh, uh,
2: story, The Trains, with the two, yeah. the two women. Well, the are, men and the women are. seem to exist in the world differently. Yeah. The, the, the women seem to be... Whatever this sort of world beyond is the women seem to be much more in contact with it. Either they inhabit it or they kind of represent it or they pass over much more easily into it. And they also kind of sort of embody the the romantic. And I think kind of with Aikman, that often means like a move towards sort of, you know, death and decay as well. But yeah, the men, the men are kind of quite sort of, they inhabit the sort of sad and tawdry sort of modern world, shuffling, perhaps, and, a lot of yeah, shuffling. and they're Easter you know, Miller. <laughs> and, yeah, oh, Mr. absolutely. Mr. Mr. Mr.
0: Miller. <laughs> uh, can I just, I, think I want to give us the biograph, some of the biographical yes. stuff about Aikman, if I may. So, Robert Fordyce Aikman, uh, born in London 1914, dies 1981, father an architect, and Aikman, uh, duly trained as an architect himself. Um, he was the grandson of the prolific Victorian novelist Richard Marsh, author of uh, a chiller thriller called *The Beetle*, uh, a book that was a bestseller and as, was popular as popular as Dracula, say, yes, they say. And uh, Robert Aikman uh, was chairman of the London Opera Society and a member of the Society for Psychical Research, and investigated Bawley Rectory, for instance. Those are the twin poles of his character: the uncanny
3: and high culture. Aikman. Yeah. Aikman. Um, Aikman investigated Paul yes. yeah, with, um, with yeah. Harry Price, Indeed. presumably. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, so also, uh, it, from 1941 to 1957, Robert Aikman was married to Edith Ray Gregerson. And um, magnificently, uh, it, it, given that um, Backlisted uh, was christened by Andrew the last time he was here, Those Poor Agents, <laughs> uh, Robert Aikman was a literary agent with his yes. wife. And here's the first tenuous link of the day. Which well-known children's author... Did Robert Aikman do the first
3: deals for... Gosh, Andy, I'm... I'm
2: give us a can clue. we give, give them us a clue? clue. Yeah. Yeah, go it, the book that he got the deal for uh, was a possible influence on the trains. A short story by Aikman. It's set, and, and it's
0: set on an isolated island with strange creatures that roam around it. Okay, hmm. so
1: it's going to be um, Thomas the Tank Engine. It is Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs>
0: Robert Aikman was the agent for the Reverend W. No Audrey. Ways. Yep, well, absolutely. Fantastic. So, um, and now furthermore, so here cool. comes another... This Aikman's very. The more you find out about Aikman, the less knowable he is, right? Yeah. And in 1946, he and his wife set up the Inland Waterways Association to... Save and Safeguard, the Canals of Britain. And they set this up with Tom and Angela Rolt, with whom Aikman subsequently had a cataclysmic falling out. Yeah, that's a theme, LTC, yeah. uh, 90- LTC
3: Rolt
2: narrowboat fame. But LTC Rolt who also wrote ghost stories set in yeah. industrial yeah. landscapes. No really? rivalry
0: there. Okay. Um, in 1951, Aikman co-authored a collection of ghost stories with the novelist Elizabeth Jane Howard, yeah. with whom he was having an affair and, with, she, and she was his client. He was her agent. And uh, he, um, that collection is called uh, We Are for the Dark. It yeah. contains both the trains, two further stories by Aikman, and then three stories by Elizabeth Jane Howard, including a magnificent story, which I'd never read before, called Three Miles Up. Which, yeah. which, uh, which we could talk about in its own it's, right. It, which Wonderful. is
2: possibly one of the best Aikman esque stories. If, if you're looking for a definition of what an Aikman story is, Three Miles question. Up by I mean, Elizabeth Chain House. She, no, she
3: left Aikman for. Kings of the Angels. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and Aikman wrote seven volumes of strange tales, two novels, only one of which was published in his lifetime, yeah. correct? And two volumes of autobiography, um, mm. which we're going to come on to in, in a yes. minute. Um, famously, everyone who seems to have known Aitman mentions that in the mid-70s, he was one of the first people to have lived in a flat in the Barbican. Is yes, it, in, so is it
1: Cold that. Hand in Mine that has the afterword does, by... Yeah. Is uh, it
0: by? Uh, it's one of his... Um, it's an editor. Gardner. So Leslie yeah.
2: Gardner, thank you. And talks about yeah.
1: him being in the Barbican. he didn't um, like and the Barbican, he didn't course. Course. no, no he he you, know, you
2: know why he didn't like the Barbican? Because it it's related to other stories the the story your tiny hand is frozen right um he lived in um, he moved to the barbican because he was hoping the royal shakespeare company would take up residence <laughs> there that's why he moved and um but he was constantly troubled by a noise from the telephone exchange oh. so oh. yeah oh. which so, is which is a theme in what in the story your tiny hand is frozen so he would asked to write in the flat of his neighbour, Jean Richardson, that's but I think right. he did this yeah. with a lot of women. Yeah. He, like, he told them there was a bothersome noise in his flat and could he write round their house? I, and Jean uh, Richardson apparently t- said, he wrote on a very special kind of dirty paper with yes, a black biro. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and she also lo-
1: left lunch out for him as well. Anyway. Yes, cold I mean, cuts. Was, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I, like, towards, I, like, I just need to say, well, this is final biographical note, that towards the end... So he laboured in relative obscurity for quite some years but then in the 70s towards the end of his life he started to be fated by other horror writers and by the burgeoning science fiction and horror community yeah. and in 1975 he won the world fantasy award for the story john was talking about pages from a young girl's journal uh, uh in cold hand in mind he, he died in 1981 there's also a brilliant there's a very i must be fair here there is a a a, a wonderful, um, short essay in one of these volumes. I think it's in... Is it in The Unsettled Dust? No. It's in Dark Entries by Ramsey Campbell, the horror writer of Ramsey Campbell. And Ramsey Campbell is at pains to say two specific things about Aikman. That he was a wonderful person to know. That he was one of the most unique people uh, he ever met that he was a brilliant writer, but that he was also, quote, a pale, chubby fellow with
3: the worst teeth I have ever seen in a living <laughs> mouth. <laughs> That's great. So, so I, um, I like that idea. He used to invite women round and, and uh, for for dinner, and it was very formal. But he'd kind of try and pass off the fact that he it was food that he'd kind of cooked, but he it was obviously catered. Yeah, yeah,
2: he could no, ne- he couldn't cook for himself. When um, when <laughs> Ray left him they, they sort of divorced in 1957 she entered a convent um, but <laughs> b- before she did she enlisted a friend called Barbara Balk uh, to be Aikman's personal secretary because he had never cooked a meal for himself in his life um, and after um, Ray went into the convent uh, Aikman held Jesus personally responsible uh, and, was, and was rude to clergymen ever after <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, Andrew we were just, I just mentioned that there were two volumes of autobiography <laughs> um, the first is called The Attempted Rescue. Now, I would, have, I would love to have read this book mm-hmm. before we, we did this episode because it looks completely extraordinary. It's yeah. not um, cheaply available, although the, the very nice people at Tartarus Press have it in print at the moment, but it is quite expensive.
2: Um, you have a copy... Do you not? Have, a, have an original copy signed by Mr. Robert Aikman. Oh
0: could you just say a bit about this book and maybe read us a little bit from this book
2: because it, the it's extraordinary rescue. but in a different way from the extraordinary stories. stories we've just been talking about. It's an incredible book and I kind of wish more people could read it. And the other thing to say is like, to read about his father is to understand the stories even more. So i quite <laughs> like to read a little bit about his father. If you that's don't okay. say. <laughs> <laughs> my father, as I knew him, was impossible to live with, to be married to, to be dependent upon. This is a vast subject, the framework and colouring of my universe. As I approach it so nearly, I warm and chill at the same time. In the first place, there was his unpunctuality. At the beginning of my life he would rise from bed at ten or eleven and even then, like me today, with much emotional agony. He would protest nonetheless every night that he would be down for breakfast and be indignant if this were doubted. Risen, he would potter for several hours with the problems and difficulties of his toilet and then in the early afternoon he would struggle away to his office. Daily he would say that he would be back for dinner, not by seven, he had to admit, but absolutely positively by eight or perhaps nine. Nightly he would Return at ten or ten thirty to find dinner spoiled and my mother in sulks. Quite often he would even miss the last train and appear in the small hours having walked the four miles from Wheelstone. As I grew older, even these times began to slip. On most days he would not depart for work until the evening and the last train <laughs> <laughs> and the last train back became his regular one. My father's unpunctuality dominated not only our day, but our weeks and months and especially our pleasures. We went much to the theatre, but it was always spoilt for Mother and me by uncertainty as to whether we should see the first curtain rise. We usually did, though by no means always, but the stress was fearful. My father always rationalised the situation by saying that late arrival gave one the extra enjoyment of trying to work out what had happened on the stage in one's absence and it was amusing to work out the location and chronology of scenes for oneself. When we went out for the day, all would be planned for a morning start, but we would actually catch a train in the late afternoon. (laughs) The best hours of the day, like the best years of life, having been spent in useless turmoil. When we went on a holiday, father often missed, not merely the train, but the day.
0: (laughs) So we should also mention, I just want to mention um, that the members of the League of Gentlemen are famous advocates yeah. for Robert Aikman. And um, if you want to listen to st- those stories being read almost as well as by Andrew, Rhys Shearsmith has oh, recorded bri- quite a lot of them, right? Because the, thing, the thing that we were saying earlier yeah.
2: about they, are, they seem like they're o- okay to navigate, but you notice once you do try and... Because the reason I chose that end, the end of the hospice is because it's quite easy to navigate. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you just you trip, you stumble, you fall. The fascinating thing about reading Aikman is his, you have the same experience reading the stories as his characters do in, within in the, the story. story. Yeah, no,
3: it's, that's so true.
0: You yeah.
2: lose yourself. Yeah. You and forget important details. You misstep.
0: And also, um, just to go back to the League of Gentlemen, also if you are listening to this on Halloween or in the, or in the run-up to Halloween... Mark Gatiss and Jeremy Dyson did an adaptation of a brilliant story called Ringing the Changes, um, which is on BBC4 Extra on Halloween. I totally recommend you listen to that. It's wonderful.
2: Interesting, the the point that you were saying about um, the um, Aikman biography and and Ringing the Changes is about um, a a recently married couple. And one of the um, things that doesn't sit right with the wife is the fact that her husband is uh, significantly older than her. And again, that's drawn from uh, Aikman's biography. At the time of their marriage, um, his mother didn't know how old Aikman's father was. She was 23. She thought he was possibly a couple of years older. God. When they signed the uh, marriage register, she discovered that he was 53.
0: Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um. oh! my
3: goodness. Yeah. Too, it's too good. For all the brilliance of the kind of... The, the, the psychology in the stories is really... I mean, these are not, these are not just... I mean, I know we i think we've said enough to say they're not just run-of-the-mill ghost stories. I mean, the 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 uh, Into the Wood, which is the last story in—not the book that we're talking about, but the uh, the Wine Dark Sea—but it's I think admissible to talk about. It. There's a brilliant piece. It's su- it's a, uh, without giving you the whole setup, Margaret, the main character in the story, becomes it, is staying in a hotel that turns out to be another kind of hospice it's a sort of sanatorium for people with insomnia and yeah. who go wandering around in outside at night and particularly in the woods and she becomes fascinated by the fact that the woods seem she's well Sweden's full of woods what's the difference between these woods and the, and the rest of the woods so she goes out for a little wander and has a kind of an epiphany which I'll read a very small bit of here her husband Henry is an engineer who builds roads so obviously has a pretty straightforward worldview she starts to feel deeply rebellious when she's wandering around these apparently aimless paths at night. Margaret took a small pull on herself. Henry must be broadly right and she broadly wrong or life would not, simply not continue as it did and more and more the same everywhere. The common rejoinder to these feelings of rebellion was, as she knew well, that she needed a little more scope for living her own life, even, as a few Mancunians might dare to say, for self-expression. But that popular anodyne never, according to Margaret's observation of other couples, appeared in practice to work. Nor could she wonder. It reduced the self in one to the status and limits of a hobby. It offered one lampshade making, or so many hours a week helping the cripples and old folk, when, one what, tr- when what one truly needed was a revelation, was simultaneous self-expression and self-loss. And at the same time, it corrupted marriage and cheapened the family. The rustling, sunny forest, empty but labyrinthine, hinted at some other answer. An answer beyond logic, beyond words, above all, beyond connection with what Margaret and her Cheshire neighbours had come to regard as normal life. It was an answer different in kind. It was the very antithesis of a hobby, but not necessarily the antithesis of what marriage should be, though never was.
2: Mm. just think that's that is such brilliant, a brilliant
0: the thing about that story as well thats called, that story as John said is called Into the Wood you know that thing Aitman was saying about the nine tenths or yeah. the undermined mm. and what Neil Gaiman was saying about what Aitman does as a writer it, that both those things apply in that story I think you would be I, I, I've read that story twice mm. because at the second time I thought okay I'm going to see if I can work out how how he did
3: that. He does what he does. <laughs> how the so, gear,
0: where does the gear change yeah. happen? And on the secondary, I can't see it. I no, can't it,
3: tell you how he does it. You know, there's one detail about him that I picked up that I liked, is that nobody would ever seen him carry a notebook. And I just have a feeling that he's one of those writers that, that he, he starts... I don't think he's, he's, a, he's a planner. I think he's one of those writers that actually, that, that the stories he, he puts his character into a situation, and he imagines, he feels his way through he, to the end of the narrative. You know, he it,
2: said that the best stories that he wrote were the ones that just came to him, that yeah. came to him unbidden. You know, that kind of did just seemed to arrive, and,
0: and also like we were, fully formed, and also. With the result that they occasionally go wrong. That's yes, the other yes. interesting thing. There's a story in that volume in the Wyandotte sea, called "Growing Boys," yeah. which which yeah. is a is, a, is a car crash. Yes, yeah. it is a car is crash. A car crash. Yeah. Uh, um, but you can see how that happened because well, he's feeling his way, John. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's. that's I think it. that's so why. Then, I mean,
3: that's maybe to say why uh, if you're going to start, "Cold Hand in Mine" is. Yeah, there is. I don't think there's a bad story in that in that collection. Mm. Now, Matthew.
0: I am tapping the table in a halloween (laughs) manner to raise raise you. I've got a tenuous link for you, Matthew.
1: Okay, excellent. (laughs)
0: Which, former subject of Backlisted, was Robert Aikman's number one fan in the 1980s and 90s and indirectly responsible for Faber republishing his work. A, oh, and gosh, a writer we have featured on so that a writer
1: we've featured mm. that has some connection to Faber. Yeah. Clue it's not last day it's to Brooklyn, or... Um, Riddle of the Sands. Riddle of the Sands, <laughs> or or Amos. It's a good one. Come on. I'm fishing. I'm just yeah, fishing. <laughs> <laughs> come
0: on, put your, put your oh, money God, down. Can
1: be, give me a clue, give me a clue, go on.
0: Um,
3: uh, I
2: can't... Book, uh, book Traders... Yeah. British book traders, Yeah,
3: is it second-hand book. Is it a uh, man, um, um, jail car? It is not. It is David Seabrook. Seabrook.
1: Of or, course yeah, it is. Yeah. Author is it really? Of all no way. all yeah. the devils Seabrook, are here. again.
0: When Neil Belton, his editor at Granta, first met Seabrook, right. what Seabrook wanted to talk about was, you're an yeah. editor, you must like Robert Aikman. Yeah. no way yeah. he collected Aikman stories and was a, an Aikman obsessive and Neil Belton said to me it was the first time he'd ever heard the name Robert Aikman was from really? David C. Wow. There, there and we was should also one... mention Richard T. Kelly who was the yes. editor at Faber Finds yep. who is responsible for
2: bringing all these wonderful yep. stories back we've got back time to for us. one other backlisted connection Yeah, go. Yeah, when god. you were uh, there was an episode where you talked talking about mass observation Yeah. yeah. and uh, I was listening to that episode and I was, I was thinking my god the way people wrote for mass observation is exactly how narrators describe events in Robert Aikman's stories, where they, they're unaware <laughs> of what... They're writing down every detail, and they're unaware, kind of, of what are the needed or important details and what are not. Oh, yes. there, and, so and also that fact is they put everything in because they think everything might be important, yeah. but it's only kind of when you're reading it back that you kind of pick up on the strange details. Uh-huh. And you were reading something from some mass observation book, and I thought that is Aikman's voice. It is the voice yeah. of mass
1: observation. Fascinating. That's interesting. I see uh, book there. That's brilliant. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Now listen, we have to wind up. Um, I want to leave us on a suitably chilling note. Uh, <laughs> by, by just, I want to read one paragraph from my favorite Aitman story which is called this is i told you this cold handed in my so hard to do this it's from a, a, it's called, a story called ravissante and it is from a volume called the unsettled dust and it is set in i think i'm right say in saying the 1920s a young artist visits an elderly woman uh, and w- with unpleasant <laughs> consequences <laughs> come back over here monsieur cried Madame A, pointing with her right forefinger to my hot armchair and then slapping her knee with the palm of her hand as if she were summoning a small, unruly dog. It was exactly like that, I thought. I have often seen it, though I have never owned a dog myself. I forbore from comment and returned reluctantly to the hot fire. Madame A, as I have said, was commanding as well as coy. And then an extraordinary thing happened. A real dog was there in the room. At least I suppose I am now not sure how real it was. Let me just say, a dog. It was like a small black poodle, clipped, glossy and spry. It appeared from the shadowy corner to the right of the door as one entered. It pattered perkily up to the fire, then round several times in a circle in front of Madame A, and to my right as I sat, then off into the shadow to my left and where I had just been standing." It seemed to me, as I looked at it, to have very big eyes and very long legs, perhaps more like a spider than a poodle, but no doubt this was merely an effect of the firelight. Nice poodle, I said to (laughs) Madame A, because I had to break the silence and because Englishmen are supposed to be fond of dogs, though I am comparatively an exception. Comment, monsieur I can see and hear her still, exactly as she looked and spoke. Nicely kept Poodle, I said, firmly sticking to English. She turned and stared at me, but came no nearer, as at such moments she usually did. So you have seen a Poodle? Yes, I said, and still not thinking there was anything really wrong. This moment, if it's not yours, it must have got in from the darkness outside. The darkness was still on my mind because of the pictures... But in e- immediately I spoke, I felt a chill despite the blazing fire. I wanted to get up and look for the dog, which after all must still have been in the room. But at the same time, I feared to do any such thing. I feared to move at all. Animals often appear in here, said Madame A huskily. Dogs, cats, toads, monkeys, and occasionally less commonplace Species, I expect it will have gone by now. <laughs> <laughs> so Isn't that fantastic? So fantastic. So fantastic? Reminds
1: me of um, playing Pokemon Go with myself. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. like a
0: nightmare, you know, really like a nightmare, silly, but wrong, you know. But, but also yeah. the
2: thing of you saying, what is the key? What makes it strange? The point where he thinks of the dog. Yeah. And yeah, then he yeah, says, yeah, dog, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then. an yeah. Kind of yeah. Extraordinary thing. Perfect. Yeah.
3: Perfect moment. Aikman moments. Well, that just about wraps up Backlisted for another episode. Thanks to Andrew Mail, to Matthew Clayton, producer Matt Hall, and, of course, thanks again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook on the BacklistedPod page, and on the Unbound site at unbound.com forward slash backlisted. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, just for those of you who are out, about to go out trick-or-treating, here's a, here's a word of warning from the British Pagan Federation. Halloween should be welcomed, welcomed, as a time to help children and adults come to terms... With their fears of change and death, be careful out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, everyone. It's the great pumpkin man. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.